let's begin here. The um, purpose of this we meet today and Thursday, two days. Purpose is to look at the uh, prayers of Rosh Hashanah and uh, hopefully as part of preparation for Rosh Hashanah itself, the davening of Rosh Hashanah. So I just wanted to begin first with the what it says in the Torah about Rosh Hashanah, and then we'll move to uh, part of the prayer of Rosh Hashanah today, and on Thursday, hopefully, we'll have time to uh, continue and to look at more of the special prayers of Rosh Hashanah. So let's start first with Rosh Hashanah in the Torah. First point to make about Rosh Hashanah in the Chumash is that the Chumash says very little about Rosh Hashanah. There's virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. Let's take a look at this. Everybody, all, for this class, all we need is a Tanakh and a Maksa. That's, that's all that's required. So the first point, let's start. The Torah mentions Rosh Hashanah twice. Let's start with that. Um, it mentions Rosh Hashanah in the book of Vayikra, Parshas Emar, together with all the other holidays. And this trans JPS, uh, it's on page... Uh, 261. 261. The list of holidays begins on 260, chapter 23. And uh, begins first with Shabbat, actually. It's very interesting. It begins with Shabbat on 260, chapter 23. Then it proceeds chronologically through the holidays. So the first is the first holiday is called, what the Torah calls Pesach. Pesach in the Torah is the 14th day of the, of the first month. The day the bringing of the Paschal sacrifice is called Pesach. The next day, the 15th day of the month, the next day the Torah calls Chag HaMatzot. That's the seven-day holiday, Chag HaMatzot. Those are the first two holidays. Then the Torah proceeds from Pesach to, talks about, describes the counting of the Omer, and then proceeds to Shavuot. And that runs us all the way to verse 22 of chapter 23. And then, in verse 23, of chapter 23. So let's read these few psukim. So the Torah, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, says very little. This is... 23. Chapter 23, verse 23. The first interesting thing is that Rosh Hashanah begins with the Vaydeber Hashem El Moshe Lemar. God spoke to Moses saying, which is how the chapter begins, so why repeat it again? Sounds like it's almost a new, a new introduction here in verse 23. And describing Rosh Hashanah, so speak to the children of Israel. On the seventh month, on the first day of the month, it shall be for you a Shabbaton. That's a day of rest. Um, Shabbaton. The word Shabbaton appears for the first time uh, here. Uh, it appears in Shabbat in the beginning of, but the Pesach and Shavuot, the Torah doesn't use the word Shabbaton. It uses Shabbaton first, after Shabbat, for the seventh month, the first day of the month. Zichron Trua Mikra Kodesh. It shall be for you a Zichron Trua. Now, what, what that means is a good question. Zichron Shua, Mikra Kodesh, a, a, a holy day. Komulecha Davodal Otasu, Vikraftemi Shel Hashem. So this is 
you shall do no work and bring a sacrifice unto God. In general, it's, I would say this, the holidays in the Chumash, in this list, there are three components to what makes something a, 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 a holy day. Three components. The first component is it's forbidden to do work. It's a malacha. You're not permitted to work on this day. That's number one. Number two, you bring a special sacrifice. That's the second component. And number three, some kind of special observance. So the days typically have this, they have this, uh, uh, with the exception of, I would say, the first day, which is Pesach. Pesach being the first day, it says, Pesach Hashem, you bring the, the sacrifice. There's no mention of not working on that day. No prohibition of labor. One might argue that Pesach and the Chumash, though it's distinct, but it's tied into Chagamatzot. Chagamatzot certainly is a holy day, and therefore, Komulechet Avodalotasu, there's a prohibition of, 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 uh, of, of working, and there's also some kind of observance. For seven days you eat matzah. So we have an observance, we have the uh, prohibition, and uh, verse number eight, Vikraftem we have a sacrifice. So that's true of all of these, all of these uh, lists have these three components. The exception seems to be the one that appears after Pesach, before Rosh Hashanah, which is Shavuot. There the Torah, does, Torah speaks of sacrifice, of course, and prohibition of work, but it doesn't seem to have any, any specific observance. So the, the Torah actually imports an observance for Shavuot. Which is strictly speaking not the observance for Shavuot. You, you do have Chagabikurim, that's very true. Uh, the Torah here, however, Bikurim, I would say, is actually a sacrifice. Bikurim is a sacrifice. It's not, it's, it's an observ. every sacrifice is an observance. Isn't it fruit? Yes, it's, it's a sacrifice that is fruit, correct. But it's a sacrifice. It's brought, it's, it's, it's brought to the altar. That's the whole description in Devarim chapter 26. The observance that the Torah imports to Shavuot is actually very interesting. It's found in verse number 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not harvest the entire field. You have to leave the corner. This verse already is a repetition of a verse in chapter 19 in Kedoshim and seems to have no relevance at all to the festival of, 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 uh, of Shavuot. It's certainly this pro- the, the, the command to leave the corner of the field is not specific to the holiday of Shavuot in any way. It's a general response, obligation. But the Torah connects it to Shavuot. It's very interesting. And the reason the Torah connects it to Shavuot is in the Chumash at least, not in the rabbinic tradition so much, but in the Chumash, the holiday of Shavuot is the holiday that celebrates the possession of the land. Torah makes the point when you possess the land it's not really your land it's actually God's land and you, and, and you demonstrate that it's God's land by virtue of leaving the corner of the field that is to say it's not so much that you're giving away the corner of the field you're simply not taking it in the first place it's not, it's not actually yours you, you abandon it, you leave it you don't take it so here the Torah actually imports as it were a prior command and a prior uh, obligation and connected to the festival of Shavuot in a certain way. So the festival of Shavuot, even though in the narrow sense this is not an observance for Shavuot per se, 
but the observance is tied into the idea of Shavuot. And the Torah spends a relative to this chapter a fair amount of time on the Omer which links Pesach and Shavuot, the festival of Bikurim, as you said, the first fruits. So yes, so Shavuot. Now we get to come to Rosh Hashanah, and what's very striking is the Torah says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. It says in the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month, it shall be for you a Shabbaton, a cessation from work, okay? And then the Torah says, grand total of two words about Rosh Hashanah, Zichron Trua. It shall be for you a Zichron Trua. What's interesting is that here in chapter 23, in verse 24, the Torah called, Torah describes the day of Rosh Hashanah as the day of Zichron Trua. That's here. Later in the Torah, in the other place where Rosh Hashanah is mentioned, that's in the list of days in which you bring special sacrifices, called the Musaf. The Musaf. The Musaf, which is listed in in Parshas Pinchas, there, again, the Torah mentions uh, Rosh Hashanah in the list of days that have special additional sacrifices. It is found in chapter 20, I believe it's 28 or 29, 29, chapter 29, verse 1, Page 352. And again, in the seventh month, the first day of the month, Mikra Kodesh, again a holy day, do no labor. And the Torah says, Yom Trua Yelachem, a day of Trua. It's a day of Trua. So here in this, in the first time the Torah mentions Rosh Hashanah, it calls this a Zichron Trua. A Zichron Trua. In the second day, the Torah speaks of Rosh Hashanah as a Yom Trua. But the Torah does not actually spell out what that might mean. In our tradition, the rabbinic understanding of Yom Shua is that Yom Shua, Shua refers to the obligation on the day of Rosh Hashanah to sound the uh, shofar. What's very strange is the Karaites didn't buy it. Karaites are actually very important because they are reading off in the plain meaning of the Chumash. The Torah does not mention Shofar in conjunction with Rosh Hashanah. That's actually a very important point. And what makes it even more striking is that elsewhere the Torah does mention Shofar. For example, in the verses that uh, describe what's called the uh, Jubilee year, the Yovel, the Jubilee year is mentioned in chapter 24, two chapters later. The Torah speaks about the Yovel, and the Torah, when it speaks about the Jubilee year, once every 50 years, the Torah says you count seven, seven times seven, 49 years. And page 265, chapter 25, and verse number 9, Vavarta shofar trua v'chodesh ha-shvi'i be'asor ha-chodesh. V'yom ha-kipurim taviru shofar b'chol ha-tzuchem. So the Torah, um, when it speaks about the Jubilee year, the Yovel, that's the year in which all the properties return to their original owners and the slaves go free. There the Torah says that to signal the Jubilee year, we are to sound the shofar. The verb the Torah uses is liyahavir shofar. Taviro shofar b'cholar tzachem. You are to uh, have the horn sounded throughout your land. Strange verb. But there we have actually Shofar Trua. There the, there the Torah uses the word Shofar Trua. When it comes to Rosh Hashanah, the day that we associate with the blowing of the Shofar, there the Torah did not in either place mention the word Shofar at all. 
the Torah says, Yom Trua Yerachem, or Zichron Trua Mikra Kodesh. A Trua is a cry, a shout or a cry. It shall be a day of, could be literally crying out. Or if it is some kind of a sound that's made, Zichron Trua, the word Zichron is the problematic word over here. Zichron couldn't be related, and the plain meaning of Zichron Trua, I think, is the word we, uh, we uh, hazkir to mention or to perhaps to, to sound to make a sound but the Torah strangely enough does not mention shofar in conjunction with the Rosh Hashanah now that's point number one what's interesting is that there's one other parsha in the Chumash in which the Torah does mention this idea of, of making sounds with some kind of instrument not a shofar but the, the trumpets. The Torah says in the book of Babidbar in chapter 10, this is chapter 10, in the beginning of chapter 10, that God spoke to Moshe, in this translation, page 304, Make for yourselves two trumpets, silver trumpets, of, made of one piece. And these trumpets have two purposes to gather the people together and to set, put, set the divisions of the people set them in motion it's a signal to the people that it's time to travel in the desert and then the Torah in chapter 10 says how you signal which one of these two things you want to do <coughs> so the Torah says the following if you are tokea here the taka is a verb here we have the verb taka if you sound them, then the entire congregation shall gather to the tent of meeting. If you sound only one of them, then the Torah continues, if you make a trua sound, you tokea a trua, then the Camps that are in the east, the, the, the Israel was divided into four camps: east and east, west, north and south. So, if you sound one, make one truer sound, then the one, this, the group in the east, the three tribes in the east, travel. Utkatem trua sheni, the second truer, then the ones in the south. Trua yitzkuva masehem. When you travel, you make a truer sound. Uvakiwa takahol. But when you gather people together, you shall not make the truer sound, you make the tkiya sound. So here actually, in the first eight verses of chapter 10, here the Torah distinguishes two different kinds of sounds. One it calls tkiya, the other it calls truer. This is, where, this is where in the Torah we have the distinction between the Tzkiah and the Trua. Not in, not in relationship to Rosh Hashanah and not in relationship to the Shofar. The Shofar is mentioned in the Yovel, the Shofar Trua. But here the Chumash distinguishes two kinds of sounds. When you gather people together, Tzkiah. The, the understanding of Tzkiah in our tradition is what kind of plain sounds. Not a broken sound, but a plain sound. And the truas of some kind of a broken sound. 
And then the Torah continues that when you come in, when you when you possess your land, when you go to war against the enemy that oppresses you, you shall you shall make the truer sound. Hariotem from the word trua. You make the truer sound. You will be remembered before God. And you'll be delivered from your enemies. Then the Torah continues. But on your happy days, your festivals, your special occasions, Rosh Chodesh, you shall make the tzkia sounds. In conjunction with your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, for you and they shall be for you a zikaron, a, re- a reminder, a remembrance before your God. So let's just stop here for a second. I'm just reading the Chumash, basically, not saying anything. What's interesting is, A, the Chumash says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah, period. Nothing. But it does say, actually, two words, the day of Rosh Hashanah is Zichron Shua. Zichron Shua. We are tempted to interpret Zichron Shua, the sounding of a Shua. Laskir, the, the mentioning of a trua, which means in this case, if trua is a musical instrument of some sort, then it means to sound to sound the instrument, to make a trua sound. What's interesting is though that later in the Chumash, not in conjunction with the shofar, but in conjunction with the trumpets, there the Torah distinguishes between two sounds. There we have tekiah, and there we have trua. And interestingly enough, that in the second half of that section, which describes the function of Tkia and Shua, not in the walking in the desert, but rather in conjunction with, uh, with uh, when you enter the land. So when you're going to war, that is to say, when you, when, you are, when, when, you enter, when you enter into battle, there the Torah says you make the truer sound, you make the truer sound, and the Torah says you shall be remembered by God and, re- and delivered from your enemies. There the Torah uses the word to, to, to remember. And not only that, on the other hand, on days of festivals and days of rejoicing, special days, you, you make the tekiah sounds together with the sacrifices, and then the Torah says, it shall be for you a zikaron, a remembrance before your God, I am your, I am, I am your God. So here we have a distinction between Tzkiah and Shua. And what is the difference between, between Tzkiah and Shua? The Torah distinguishes the two. So the Tzkiah sound, essentially, is in the desert when you gather, when you bring people together, is when you make the Tzkiah sound. Or when you enter the land and you bring your sacrifices on special happy occasions, then you make the Tzkiah sound. So the Tzkiah sound fundamentally is a sound that you make in conjunction with either joyous events, and joyous events could be special days, but bringing people together is also joyous. When people come together for common purpose, that's a joyous event. So in those times, you, 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 the sound you make is the plain tekiah sound. However, in time of war, there you make the truer sounds, the truer sound, or when you're traveling in the desert, when you're about to travel in the desert, when you're traveling in the desert, that's dangerous because it's a transitional time. So it's a place of vulnerability. Or war. 
war is a dangerous uh, situation, and it also reminds us of our vulnerabilities. So during those times, says the Torah, you make the truer sound, and you will be remembered before God. So the idea, the idea was say sounding the the trumpet in the time of war in the Chumash has two different significances. One is it sounds like simply to 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 alert the people to the fact that there's a war. You sound an alarm. When there's a war, there's a sirens go off. There's an alarm. But in the Chumash, it's more than just an alarm because the Torah says you shall be remembered before God. So apparently, this this sound that you're making, the truer sound, is to be remembered before God and to be redeemed, says the Torah, from your enemies. So the truer sound sounds like some kind of prayer. You are petitioning God for help in time of crisis. By the same token, the, the trumpets have another function, which is to uh, make a joyous sound in conjunction with, with festive occasions. And there too, it shall be for you a remembrance before God. It sounds, there it sounds like the tekiah sound is sounded in conjunction with your, the special occasions, the happy occasions, days upon which you bring special sacrifices. This too shall be a zikaron before God. Now, now let's get back to Rosh Hashanah. The question is, it's very hard to know actually, the question is when someone opens up the Chumash and reads Rosh Hashanah, and the Torah says very little about Rosh Hashanah, but it does say, it shall be a day of zikaron shuah. When you hear those words, zikaron shuah, the question is, what what actually comes to mind when you see these two words, Zichron Shuah? So the word Zichron Shuah appears in conjunction with these trumpets. In conjunction with the trumpets, and there's Zichron Shuah, the two words come together as a cry, as something that you're sounding, A, in time of, time of either vulnerability or danger or crisis, and B, the idea of Zichron Shuah in the trumpets is not just to sound the alarm, but you shall be remembered before God, and you shall be redeemed from your enemies. So if one chooses, it's a good question, you don't have to do this, but if one does read the Rosh Hashanah uh, text that we have before us, the two words of Zichron Shuah as connecting to the trumpets, then the suggestion would be that the idea of this Rosh Hashanah is somehow on this seventh month, the first day of the seventh month, you are crying out for some reason to God with the hope that you will be remembered. But the question, of course, is why would you do such a thing on, this, on the first day of the seventh month? We understand why you would do this in a time of war. We understand why you would do this in a time of traveling in this, in this desert which is the place of, of, of transition, place of uncertainty. But why would you make the sound, this Zichron Shua, on the first day of the seventh month? So, presumably, you would make this cry on the first day of the seventh month. There's something about the first day of the seventh month that, uh, that is connected to a kind of uncertainty or a kind of vulnerability or kind of danger and this speaks to the tradition that the day of Rosh Hashanah is a day of 
day of, a day of judgment. That's how the Ramban actually understood. Yom Shua, the Ramban thinks the, the, the broken cry, um, and that, by the way, the Targum says Yom Shua, Yom Yevava, a day of crying. The, the, the sound of, the, of, this, of this, let's assume it's a shofar for now. Uh, so we, in our tradition, we read it as a shofar, but the broken cry is a response to the idea of, 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 of being judged. The question is, where in the Torah is there any hint whatsoever that day of Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment? So I want to make a suggestion about that, because I do think there is a, is a suggestion in the Chumash that Yom Zichron Shua does suggest, as our tradition would have it, a day of, a day of vulnerability or a day of judgment. And that is that if we get back to what the Torah, the simple meaning of, of Rosh Hashanah in the Chumash, without, without the rabbinic understandings and all that, what's interesting about what is special about Rosh Hashanah? So Chumash says virtually nothing. It strikes me what's special about Rosh Hashanah. And remember, the Torah uses the word Shabbaton for Rosh Hashanah. It, don't use, it starts with Shabbaton with Shabbat, then Pesach, no, Chagamatzot, no, Shavuot, no. And then Rosh Hashanah, yes. And Rosh Hashanah is, of course, the seventh month. In the Chumash, the first month is the month that we call Nisan. Tziat Mitzrayim is the first month. The seventh month is the month of Rosh Hashanah. So the seventh day of the week is Shabbat. The seventh year is the Shemitah, sabbatical year. The Jubilee is seven times seven. It's the year after the seven times seven. And Rosh Hashanah is the seventh month. So the seventh month is the holy month, is the special month. And the reason it's so special is because it's the month that we have three of our festivals, one after the next. The two primary festivals in the Chumash in the seventh month, obviously, are Yom Kippur on one hand and Sukkot on the other. Interesting is that in this little section in Emor, the word Shabbaton appears both in conjunction with Yom Kippur, Shabbat Shabbaton, but also in conjunction with the festival of, festival of Sukkot. So the, the, the step Sukkot, yes, also Shabbat, not Shabbat Shabbaton, Shabbaton. Shabbat Shabbaton is Yom Kippur and Shabbos. But Shabbaton is Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and also Sukkot. Let's just see if that's true. Yep, well Shabbaton means you don't work. Shabbaton is a day of cessation from work. Yes, uh, verse number 39, chapter 23. Interesting is something else. Actually, there are many interesting things about this chapter. But in particular, interesting about chapter 23, verse 39, it begins with the word ah. Ah. It's also interesting that chapter 23, verse 27, begins with the word ah. How do we translate Ach? Here they translate Mark. It's hard to know what Ach, Mark. In other words, the point, note or Mark, yeah, note. Here's the point. Rosh Hashanah is the day that announces the seventh month. It's the first day, it's Rosh Chodesh, it's a super Rosh Chodesh. It's the Rosh Chodesh of the seventh month. And what's important about the seventh month is the the two main holidays in the seventh month. The first of which is Yom HaKippurim, it's a day of affliction, the Torah calls it. It's a day of atonement. That's the first 
main holiday of the seventh month, and the second main holiday of the seventh month is the festival of Sukkot, which is the ultimate day of days of the days of joy. It's the days of joy, the days of celebration. The harvest is completed, Chag Asif. So Rosh Hashanah is significant in the Chumash, I think, in the sense that it introduces these two days and by extension it actually participates in these two days. In other words, Rosh Hashanah is on one hand the introduction to, uh, to, a, to a Yom Kippur. On the other hand, it's the introduction to the festival, to the joyous festival of the seventh month. And because it's an introduction to both of these two uh, days, it partakes of both of these two days. So from one perspective, it's the day that precedes Yom Kippur. Now what day would precede Yom Kippur? If Yom Kippur is a day of atonement, okay? So a day of atonement means a day of confession, a day of uh, transformation, a day of taking responsibility, a day of making commitments. That's what Yom Kippur is about. And of course, all this happens in the Torah by virtue of this special service of of Yom Kippur. It's a day in which the temple is itself cleansed. That's actually a very important point about Yom Kippur. It's a day of new beginnings. So what would logically precede that? What logically would precede it would be this date, yeah, the, the, what we call the Aseret Yimei Tshuva. The process of leading up to Yom Kippur, which begins with basically Rosh Hashanah, is the day that leads up to, the day that leads up to, uh, up to Yom Kippur. So, but from, so from that perspective, it would be the day of, which begins the process. It's interesting that, just to jump for a moment to the, to the Masa, which we'll get to today and also on Thursday, what's interesting about Rosh Hashanah, it's a very interesting day, because Rosh Hashanah, despite the fact that we say, call Rosh Hashanah the first day of the ten days of repentance, the Aseret Yimei Tshuva, this, the our prayer book, our master, doesn't seem to reflect that. In other words, what you would expect on Rosh Hashanah would be a day of a day of confession, a day of repentance. But what's interesting is when you open up the master of Rosh Hashanah, we don't find that. We don't find any confessions on Rosh Hashanah. And we don't find any mention in the core prayers of Rosh Hashanah about repentance at all. Interesting is that even though the Ashkenazim, the Spartans certainly, have a custom to recite Srichot, either beginning with the month of Elul, that's the Sephardim, the Ashkenazim start on the Saturday night, either just before Rosh Hashanah, depending if we have four days or not, and we start the previous Saturday night as we started. And the longest Srichot service that we have during the ten days of repentance is the day before Rosh Hashanah, the Ashkenazim. Erev Rosh Hashanah is, it goes on forever. And the second longest one is Tom Gedalia, the day after Rosh Hashanah. So the day before Rosh Hashanah and the day after Rosh Hashanah, we have a very, very long penitential prayers. But the day of Rosh Hashanah itself, we have no penitential prayers. It's actually strange. So you would, we would have expected that on Rosh Hashanah, uh, we'd have all kinds of uh, penitential prayers and confessions, etc., it's conspicuously absent. We, we simply don't have it. That's a very interesting point. Why we don't have it, let's get to in a minute, but we don't have it. But we certainly would expect it. And by the way, when you look at the uh, history of Rosh Hashanah, 
you see that, for example, and this is already debated in the Gaonim already talk about it, the Rishonim talk about it, there was a custom to fast on Rosh Hashanah. Yes, to fast on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, so that was essentially discontinued. The, the, I don't know anybody that fasts on Rosh Hashanah. Though there is a custom to fast Arab Rosh Hashanah, actually, which some people, and, and many people fast the day after Rosh Hashanah, it's Tamgadalia, which is probably not a coincidence that it ha- takes place the first day after Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah itself, my, my point's a simple point. When you look at the Chumash of Zichron Shua, two things come to mind when you read it. Because you see the word Zichron Shua, and automatically it transports us to chapter 10 of Bamidbar, to the trumpets. There the word Zikaron is used in two different senses. One is Zikaron, you'll be remembered before God in time of crisis. But the other Zikaron is on the days of your festivals and your special days and your holy days and Rosh Chodesh. You shall be tokea, you to make the plain, the flat sound, the plain sound. And these days shall be for you a zikaron, a day of remembrance. So the idea of remembrance functions in the, in the, in the chapter about the trumpets in two radically different senses. One recalls, one is a sense of danger. God remembers you in times of danger and hopefully delivers you from, from the enemy. But then the word zikaron appears in the opposite sense of on days of joy and festivals, holy days, these you shall be tokea, and this will be a zikaron before God. So when you blow the shofar, actually, it's interesting. First of all, as I said, the Rosh Hashanah doesn't mention the word shofar, but the, our understanding is that zikaron shua is the shofar. But we have imported to Rosh Hashanah actually the parsha of these of the of the of the trumpets. Because in Rosh Hashanah, what sound do we make? The Torah calls Rosh Hashanah Yom Trua, a day of Trua. That's what the Torah calls it. Not here. Here it says Zichron Trua. In Parsha's Pinchas, it says Yom Trua. But the Gemara added something to Yom Trua, a day of Trua. So the Gemara says Pshuta Lefanel Upshuta Liacharel. What does that mean? Pshuta Lefanel Upshuta Liacharel. Pshuta is a, a, a plain sound. Make a plain sound before and a plain sound afterwards. So what sound, when we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, how do we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah? Tekiya, Trua, Tekiya. Right? Now forget Tekiya Gadoa. Tekiya Gadoa is... Tekiya Gadoa is a, a minor. Tekiya Gadoa is the last, the, the last set, you end with the Tekiya Gadoa. That's... Tekiya, Trua, Tekiya. The Torah called Rosh Hashanah Yom Trua, but the Gemara says Trua means a broken sound. Now, what is the broken sound we're making on Rosh Hashanah? So the Gemara says already that Rabbi Avo, very Rabbi Avo had a suffix, had a doubt what this Trua is. He had, he wasn't sure about the Trua. Was it a kind of staccato, like that? That we call it Trua. So we call it Trua. But that's fine. No, that's a, that's a Trua. Shvarim is a sigh. Three of them. Now, the question is how, exactly how you make this. The sigh itself, they do different, different ways to... The ones who do, do know, if you want to know what the, what the real tradition is, the Ashkenazic tradition, you go up to Washington Heights, to the Yekis. They never change anything. So whatever they did, they did a thousand years ago. And they have very interesting customs about the, the Shvarim itself, actually... 
There are two different ways to sound the shvarim. The shvarim is it just it's, it's from the plane, or is it? It has a, a, it itself is also a broken. It's a side, but a broken side. There are two different traditions of, about the shvarim. But the point is, that then we have a third possibility. The Gemara says shvarim shua to do both together. First the side, the three, and then the staccato sound. So Rabbi Yavo didn't know exactly. He says he wasn't sure what the either what the best way to make this truer sound is. So the given the fact that we're not sure which one is the best way, so we're doing all of them. So that we do all of them. So we have the way it's called tashra tkiya. The way typically is done is tkiya shvarim trua tkiya, then tkiya shvarim tkiya, then tkiya what we call a trua tkiya. That's the, that's a set. And then we are doing that set, if you count up the sounds, there are ten sounds, nine or ten, and we do three, three, three sets for a total of thirty sounds that we are sounding before, before Musaf on, on, on Rosh Hashanah. We'll get to more of this on maybe on Thursday, we'll see how far. But in any event, so we, we are making both sounds. We are sounding trua, which is some kind of a broken sound, but the Gemara instructs us, the Mishnah says, that Trua, before and after the Trua, you make this Tekiya sound. So Tekiya, Trua, Tekiya, which they call, instead of a broken sound, a plain sound, Pshuta. The word, instead of Tekiya, they say Pshuta. Pshuta lefanela, u Pshuta liyacharel. So the sound of the Shofar, actually, if you think about it, is reflecting something about the day of Rosh Hashanah. The, the, the tradition understands that Rosh Hashanah wears two different hats, as it were. On one hand, it's a day of crying, because we see ourselves as standing in judgment. It, it, it's a day that precedes Yom Kippur. You can't get to Yom Kippur without going first to Rosh Hashanah. You first have to enter into judgment before you can ask for forgiveness. So we enter into judgment on, on Rosh Hashanah. Primarily, it's a day of judgment. But that's one element of Rosh Hashanah. But then there's another side to Rosh Hashanah. It's one of the, it's one of the happy days. Right? It's a happy day, Rosh Hashanah. It's also Rosh Chodesh. So it's Rosh Chodesh, and it's a moed, it's a, it's a day of joy to some extent. Not overwhelming joy, the joy is tempered by the other piece of it, the judgment. So, on, so the Rosh Hashanah wears two hats. Rosh Hashanah is an interesting day. On one hand, it's, it's, a, it's a festival. On the other hand, it's a day of, 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 of prayer, or prayer without words. We get a lot of words also, but, we have, but the Shofar is a kind of prayer without words, Therein lies the mystery of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is both. It's simultaneously both of these things. It's a day of crying as reflected in the Trua. It's a day of Simcha and Rosh Chodesh as reflected in the Tkia. So we are sounding Tkia, Trua, and then, and then Tkia. And I would say that accounts for, I would say Jews traditionally have celebrated, observed Rosh Hashanah in very different ways. Different communities emphasize one of these emphasize more one or, or the other of these two elements. Some emphasize the joy of Rosh Hashanah. It's, it's, it's Yantav, basically. So, and others emphasize the day of, the idea of the broken cry, the Yom Adin. And different communities pick up on, but, but essentially, the, the sounding of the Shofar, Tkia, Trua Tkia, is reflective of the day of Rosh Hashanah itself. And I believe that it's picked up from this, uh, from these Chatzotzrot, from the trumpets that are sounded, and there we have the distinction between the tkiyah on one hand and the trua on the other. Okay, that's the first point I wanted to make about Rosh Hashanah.
Now let's get back. I want to get back to this idea of zichron trua, the idea of. I think the plain meaning is that on the first day of the month you make this sound to announce to everybody that the seventh month has in fact arrived. It's it's a call. It's it's, it's a reminder to us about this month, which contains both uh, both uh, both the day of atonement and the day of affliction. Yom Kippur, and also the days of joy. So the Torah says, but the Torah says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. I mean, virtually nothing. That's why, for example, uh, the Torah reading of Rosh Hashanah is actually very interesting. The Torah readings in general, we are picking something from the Torah in which the Chumash mentions the day itself. That's what we typically do. So in Yom Kippur, we read the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur. On the festival of Sukkot, we read, and Pesach, we read sections of the Torah that speak about Pesach and Sukkot. But on Rosh Hashanah, we have a problem. We don't have enough verses. I mean, there's nothing... So the readings of Rosh Hashanah are very striking. We have Rosh Hashanah. We nowadays observe two days of Rosh Hashanah. We are reading the first day of Rosh Hashanah, chapter 21 of, of Breshit, Hashem Pokadet Sarah. And the second day, we continue with the next chapter, which is the binding of Isaac. But neither one of those two mentions Rosh Hashanah at all. It's an excellent question. Why were those chapters chosen for Rosh Hashanah? That's a different Shia, but, that, but that, that's an important point. It's very striking. that It's the only holiday in which the Torah readings seem to have no relevance, certainly no, no obvious relevance to, to the day. It's, of course they have relevance, but, but, but what is the relevance? It doesn't mention Rosh Hashanah in any sense. Yep? That's correct. Right. So the question is, right? The the shofar is mentioned at Har Sinai. No, no question about it. Uh, I don't think the word zikaron is mentioned there, but that's true. The, the, and of course, in our in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, maybe we'll get to it on Thursday. We are mentioning that the prayers of Rosh Hashanah. Which have three different sections to them: Malchiot, Zichrot, and Shofrot. Shofrot are verses that mention the Shofar. The first three of which are taken from the Torah, and exactly as you say, we mentioned three verses from from Har Sinai. So that's, and we'll, we'll discuss that on Thursday. I'll, I wanted to say something else before we get to the uh, actually the service of Rosh Hashanah, the Machsir. I wanted to look at the Machsir, but before that, I wanted to make a different point about about Rosh Hashanah. Something to think about. And that is, the Torah actually mentions the festivals in these two places. It mentions the festivals in Vayikra, Parshat Emar, what gives you the list of festivals. And it mentions the festivals again in the book of Bamidbar where it talks about the Muslim, the days that have the additional sacrifice. There's one day that's mentioned in the second list that's not mentioned in the first list. What day is that? The, the, the list is the same except for one thing. There's one difference between them. There's one day that's not a holy day, but there is a special sacrifice, which is what? What? No, Shemini Ateris is a holy day. It's very holy. Which day is not a holy day in the Torah, but has a special sacrifice? It's mentioned in the list of days that have sacrifices, but it's not mentioned as one of the holy days. Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is not mentioned in the first list. It's not a holy day. 
sounds that way. But it is mentioned in the second list. Because it's a day that you have a special extra sacrifice. That's why in Rosh Chodesh we have a Musaf. Have a musaf when the Musaf service, Musaf, the additional service of days that there's an additional sacrifice. There's no Musaf on Hanukkah, there's no Musaf on Purim. There is a Musaf on Rosh Chodesh. Right? So that's what it is. So the typical, the holy days all have a Musaf. That's part of what it means to be a holy day, special sacrifices. Rosh Chodesh has special, special sacrifices but does not in the Torah at least seem to have any prohibition of work. So therefore, it's not listed in the first list, but it's listed in the second list. However, I wanted to make a different point about the holidays, and especially the, the, the holidays that are... Here it's, it's the Torah connects, I believe, or certainly, let's put it this way, our tradition certainly connects our calendar to the to the narratives of the Torah in a completely different setting. But the two chapters that I mentioned, the one in Vayikra and Bamidra, there's a, a, simply a list of the holidays. But the holidays actually have another connection, not to the list of holidays, but to the narrative, to the story. The calendar basically is a story. Let's understand this. It's a story. And the story that, the, the, the story that is the basis of the Jewish calendar is found in one particular book of the Torah, which is the second book of the Torah, the book of Exodus, as the Ramban called the book of redemption. The book of Exodus is the, the book of Exodus is about two things. Yes, of course, the book of Exodus is about the Exodus. That's the first half of the book. The book of Exodus is about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. That's the first half of the book. That culminates with the crossing of the sea, chapter 15. But the second half of the book is also about the exodus. Not about the physical exodus from Egypt, but about the spiritual exodus. And that story revolves around, essentially, the events that take place around the receiving of the Torah, about Matan Torah. In particular, the critical story is that after Israel stood at Sinai and accepted the Torah, and Moshe comes down the mountain and and there's a covenant between God and the people, in chapter 24, and then Moshe ascends the mountain again to bring down these tablets, which are to be housed in, this, in God's house, and God will dwell amongst the people. Then in the Torah we have the story of the golden calf. So the story of the golden calf is a violation, among other things, when the people say, these are the gods who took you out of Egypt. That's a violation of the first of the Ten Commandments, which begin with, I am the God who took you out of Egypt. You shall have no gods before me. So we didn't violate, you know, uh, clause number 27, paragraph 3. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's the first words. I am the God. And in Moshe, the first thing Moses told when he goes back up the mountain is, you shall have no silver or golden gods be, uh, before me. So we violated the very basis, the very introduction, as it were, the, the central and foundational command of the Ten Commandments and also of the Book of the Covenant that begin the same way. And then we require, so then Moshe comes down the mountain, God has all kinds of threats. Moshe comes down the mountain, he breaks the tablets. And then begins the process of reconciliation between God and the people. Eventually we get another set of tablets and eventually we are able to build God's Mishkan, God's tabernacle, and that is the happy ending to the book of Exodus. Now, how is that marked on our calendar? 
How is that marked? It's marked on our calendar. Of course, the, everybody knows the first half of the book is marked on a calendar with Passover, with the Pesach, the Paschal sacrifice, and the festival of Matzah. That, that's the main holiday that marks Book of Exodus Part 1. <coughs> but how do we mark Book of Exodus Part 2? We conclude with the Mishkan. So the Mishkan, in, in Jewish tradition, <coughs> is, re- is marked through the holiday that we call Sukkot. There are a hundred proofs that this is true. I'm not going to go through all the proofs now, but it, it is that way. The sukkah, basically, is a kind of little mishkan that we are building. It's interesting, by the way, that Gemara asked the question, how, how tall must the sukkah be? What, what is the minimum height of the sukkah? There are probably 20 such. I find 20 different allusions to the connection in our tradition between the tabernacle of the book of Exodus and the sukkah. So the Gemara says, how tall must the sukkah be? So the Gemara says, let's see. The word sukkah, where do we find the word sukkah? We find the word sukkah in terms of the two kruvim, the cherubs that are above the ark. Sochachim bekanfehem ala kaporet. And the Gemara then goes to demonstrate that the, the kruvim were ten tzvachim above, harvard ten tzvachim above the ark, so that the minimum uh, size of the sukkah is ten, is ten, ten handbreadths. But the, the, the deeper point over here, of course, is that they're understanding that the mishkan, the, the, the culminating event of the book of Exodus, one might say the purpose of the book, is to constru- construct a space, albeit a temporary space, the Mishkan is not a permanent house. It moves from one place to the next. So it's your temporary house, but in this temporary space, which in a certain sense perhaps is the, is the ideal space, because God, in fact, can't be confined to any space. So the idea that the Mishkan is this portable temple that we take with us, and every place we go, God is dwelling, to get, we are living together with God in the same space, so that the idea of the Sukkah then becomes this uh, space that we construct ourselves in which we construct, we construct a temporary space with the schach above, of course, and we see this mishkan is representing the idea that we and God can dwell together. But before you get to this holiday of, of to the mishkan in the book of Exodus, something had to happen because there was that golden calf. So we had to somehow overcome the problem with the golden calf. So we are, I'll get to in a second what we have to do, but the moment in time in which we are receiving God's response to our prayers, to Moses' prayers, Moshe's our, our intermediary. He's, he represents us before God, and Moshe is praying for us to God. And, it, and what is the moment in the Torah that we understand that God will agree to dwell amongst us? What is the moment in the Chumash that God agrees to dwell amongst us? Well, God says Salati Kedvorecha in the book of Bamidbar, actually, but you're on the right track. God said Salati Kedvorecha, you're very close. That's in the book of Numbers. That's the, that's the second, that's the story of the spies. But it's when God, it's when God reveals to Moses, Right? God said to Moses, stand before me in the cleft of the rock. I will pass by you, right? 
And what does is, what is God say when God passes by? That's before that. And the Yavir Kotuviyah Panecha came. By the way, you have over there the Sakotiyat Kapiyolecha. We have again the Sukkah over there. Interesting. But what does God reveal to Moses in the cleft of the rock? It's rather Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanum. What we call the 13 attributes of God's mercy. The attributes of God's mercy are what is required in order to achieve the forgiveness, right? That is to say, God is teaching us these, these attributes of mercy which enables God to dwell and the people to dwell together. Well, I would formulate it this way. The God of, of strict judgment can't dwell amongst us. Because as God said to Moses, how can I travel with you in the desert? You're going to sin because you're stubborn, as all people will sin, and I'm going to destroy you. I'll get angry, lose my temper, says God, I'll destroy you. Best I stay away. The people don't want that. The people are crying for God. The people were mourning. Moshe has to figure out a way. And the way that Moshe, the conclusion that Moshe comes to when God agrees, you can dwell with us in the, in the, in, as a God whose primary attributes in terms of connecting to us are these yud gimel the attributes of, of God's mercy. One might say Moshe asks for God to limit God. And limit God and primarily focus on Hashem Hashem Kelrachum Vachanon. And in doing so, this will allow God to dwell amongst the people. So on our calendar, we have a day that we say, Hashem Hashem Kelrachum Vachanon. We say it many times, and actually, it is probably the core prayer of this particular day. Which day is this? Yom Kippur, of course. That is the prayer of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur has two main prayers. Maybe three, but two primary ones are first of all confessions on Yom Kippur. Vidui is one of the primary prayers of Yom Kippur. And the other prayer of Yom Kippur is what we call Selichot. Now the custom is to start the Selichot service before evening for Rosh Hashanah, but Selichot fundamentally are, 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 are Yom Kippur. In fact, it's clear anybody who studies the history of prayer knows that the that the authentic tradition on, Rosh, on Yom Kippur is to say Slichot in all five prayers of Yom Kippur. For any number of reasons, they were eliminated for the, um, the, the Yeki say them in all the prayers, and the, and the Sfar them also. But that, that is the authentic tradition. For whatever reason, it disappeared from Shachrit, Mincha, and Musaf in many places. But when you open up anybody who studied the prayers of Yom Kippur, sees that they're built into the... That is what Yom Kippur is about. It's a, it's a day of atonement. It's a day of requesting forgiveness. It's a day of reminding God, God's quality of Hashem, Hashem, Kerachum, Vachadon, which allows God to dwell amongst us. So, the Jewish calendar then, thinking backwards from the end, the end being Sukkot, at the end, the goal being, the goal of, of, of Exodus is to have God create a space where God and human beings can live together. But how do you get there? How do you get to Sukkot? You can only get to Sukkot through through uh, through Yom Kippur, through Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanu. Okay. So now the question is, so this is uh, to me this is self-evident. It's nice to talk about. It. I mean, when you hear it, it's self-evident. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but what about Rosh Hashanah? What is Rosh Hashanah from this perspective? So it strikes me that if we take this to its logical conclusion, then Rosh Hashanah must be something that related to what transpired in between the time that God said to Moshe, I can't, I can't dwell with you. And up to the time where God revealed to Moses the attributes of God's mercy. Something happens in between that time. 
actually two things happen in between that time. And that is that the first thing that happens when God said to Moshe, you, I, I can't dwell with you, the first thing we are told in chapter 33 after the golden calf, and let, me, let, me, let, me, let me just state the obvious. The story of the golden calf is the core story of the Torah. I mean, once you get out of Genesis, by far the most important story of the Chumash. Nothing's even close. Because the golden calf actually defines the human being, in this case Israel's connection to God. The story of Har Sinai is just the one big mirage. It's, it's, it's a fake, actually. There's no way in the world that the Jewish people, standing three months after being slaves and complaining all the time, could possibly connect to God in Mount Sinai. It's not possible. Impossible. And of course it's impossible. It doesn't happen. Because of course we make a golden calf. The, 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 the authentic connection to God is not the first standing at Sinai. The authentic connection to God only happens after the golden calf, where we discover who we really are, not that we pretend to be, okay? The only way to, by the way, let me say a point in general, the only way to get to Yom Kippur is to stop fooling ourselves. That, that's the very important point, which we do all the time, of course. So the Rosh Hashanah is a big wake-up call to go mimamakim, to go into the depths of who we really are, not who we pretend to the other people that we are, which is what the problem is in, in pretending to the others, we always pretend to ourselves. So, of course, the golden calf is the critical story because only after the golden calf and only the broken tablets can you actually go anywhere. You have to break the tablets first in order to actually get the true tablets, which are the second tablets. That, that, that's the real connection. So the question is, and that's the key story of the book of Exodus, that's the key story, because only after the Ego do you get to Hashem, Hashem, Kerachon, V'chanun, do you get to the Mishkan? book ends with the Mishkan. The question is, what happened when God informed Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus that I can't dwell with you? God said to Moses, after Moses broke the tablets and the people, and there was a civil war, and God said to Moses in chapter 33, page 186, go, leave, leave, leave here. Take the people that you brought from Egypt, bring them into the land. I'm going to keep my promises, says God. I'll bring them to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm sending my angel before you. And I'll chase out, he will chase out, the angel will chase out all the inhabitants of the land, and I'll bring you to a land of milk and honey. But I will not go with you. I will not go up with you, for you're too stubborn. For you're a stubborn people, a stiff-necked people. Lest I consume you, lest I destroy you on, on the way. So God says to Moses, it's not that I don't like you, says God to Moshe, but this is best for everybody, you know? I'm going to send my angel, take care of you, milk and honey, the works, but it's better, I, but I can't go. Because if I go, I'll destroy you. That's what God said. So now the question is, what is the response? Before you get to Hashem, Hashem, Kerachun, Vachanun, so there, there, was, there was several responses in the Torah. The first response in the Chumash, Vayishma Amet HaDavar Raza page 186, chapter 33, right? The first response in the Chumash was Vayit Abalu, the people mourned. The first response to the statement, I will not go with you. By the way, what does it mean, I will not go with you? What does that mean, actually? When God said to Moses, I will not go with you, what does that mean? Practically speaking, what does that mean? I will not go with you. Practically speaking, very practically speaking, 
there'll be no Mishkan. Actually, there can't be a Mishkan. There can't be a Mishkan. Why can't there be a Mishkan? That was before the golden calf. First of all, Hashem didn't say that. Number one, Hashem didn't say that. Moses said that, right? Hashem, you are of Moses. True. Hashem said many things prior to the golden calf. But there's a covenant. Moses broke it. The people broke it. So therefore, what do you do now? Forget the past. What, what, what do you do today? That's the question. The people, there can't be a Mishkan for a simple reason. Practically, there can't be a Mishkan because Moses broke the tablets. The tablets, says the Chumash, unlike everything else in the Mishkan, is the work of God. So in Moses, that's the power of breaking the tablets. It actually can't be a Mishkan unless God gives us another set of tablets. And God is in no mood at this point to give us a second set of tablets. That's the enormity of breaking the tablets. They can't be a Mishkan. So God says to Moshe, go into the land, possess the land. I will not go in your midst. Translation. I'm not going to... We, we, we can't live together. It's a very simple point. There won't be a Mishkan. So, but, you, but, but you will inhabit the lands and you will chase out the inhabitants and you get milk and honey. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Nesheva Rami Peset, you know? That's right. When the people heard this terrible news, they mourned. This is marked on our calendar. Not marked as, not a holy day on the calendar, but an important day on the Jewish calendar. What is the day? It is Yudzayim Batamos Tech. I'm called Tishabov. It's the three weeks. It's the day, so you're right, it is Yudzayim Batamos. It's basically the three weeks, you know, Tisha B'Av, the day of mourning. And what are we mourning actually on Tisha B'Av? Yuzayim B'Tamuz, the three The absence of God. Destruction of the temple. Yes, you hear it. Destruction of the temple. There will be no temple. That's what God says. You can go into the land. I'll send my angel. But there will be no, there will be no temple. When the people heard this news, they mourned. And the point is, that's, very, that's a turning point. Because the people, the people interpret this as, as something very bad. It could have been interpreted otherwise, but the people don't interpret it otherwise. The people are mourning. The people are crying. We don't want this. We want God to be with us, to dwell with us. That's the... So now the question is, God said to Moshe, tell the people, look, it's verse number five, tell the people you are stiff-necked. Sheorev. Rega, if I even go in your midst, I'll destroy you. So God says, keep off the jewelry. The people took their jewelry off. The jewelry was used to make the golden calf. Take, keep the jewelry off. Let me think what I can do. The people stripped themselves of their jewelry. So the Chumash presents God it's very, in very human terms. God is saying, I, I, I'm, I'm hearing you, but I can't figure out what to do about it. That's how the Torah presents God. The people are crying, and God is upset. Everybody's upset, but no one knows what to do. Everybody, God wants to be reconciled with the people, but God says, but, 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 but what can I do? What can I do? There's, there's no solution to the problem. So at this point, somebody enters to save the day. The hero of, uh, the hero of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a hero. Moshe is the hero for Yom Kippur. Moshe is going to somehow bring the two sides together. And that's what Moshe sets out to do over here. So what does Moshe do? What's the first thing Moshe does? 
And I, I, I would say that conceptually, I think, is what, it's what Rosh Hashanah is about, actually. As reflected in the story over here, and I think reflected even in some of the, the Haftorah of Rosh Hashanah, the second day. Awesome Haftorah of Rosh Hashanah. What Moshe does is very simply, he hear, God, Moshe says the following, I, this is, this is, this is what, I'm, I'll, I'll talk in Moshe, with my voice, but God said, Moshe says, I'm hearing you saying, I'm hearing you saying that you'd want to dwell amongst the people, but I understand that you, we can't find an answer yet. To the, so here's what I suggest we do as a first step. First step is, you can't, you said it, I can't be in your midst. That means I can't build the Mishkan. Okay, so let's not, let's, let's take a different step. Instead of being in the midst of the people, what about if I build you a house outside the camp? Outside the camp. You want, don't want to be with them and you can't be in their midst. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my own tent. Because me you love, right? Tell me you love me so much. Me you love. I'm going to take my own tent and place it outside the camp. Far away from the camp. And I'm going to give it a name. My tent. It's called Moses' tent before. But now it's a new name. Oel Moed. The tent of meeting. Right? What does Oel Moed mean in the Torah? What is Oel Moed in the Chumash? Oel Moed in the Chumash is? It's the Mishkan. Oel Moed is a synonym for the Mishkan. Moses took his own tent, he put it outside the camp, and he gave it a new name, the Mishkan. And in this Mishkan, in this Oel Moed, the Torah says, Anybody who sought God could go to the camp, could walk far. It's far. Harcheik is far away. Anybody who desired to do so, who is seeking God, can take the journey and travel far and go to this tent. That's the first thing Moses does. So first of all, he brings God closer to the people. God now has a place. Okay, not in the middle of the people. A few miles away. But those who seek can find. And then it says something else. Vayak could save Moshe, oh, and Moses himself would go out to this tent. The people would stand up and stand by their own tent. And they would look at Moses until he went to his tent. And when Moses entered his tent, then the cloud would come down and stand by the door. And, and God would speak to Moshe. And when the people would see this, when the people would see the cloud at Moses' tent, they would see the cloud far away, and the people would all get up, they would all bow down by their own tent. Then the Torah says, and God would speak to Moses face to face, as one spoke to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his disciple Joshua, Yoshua bin Nun, this is, strikes me, this is what happens, this is the next step. This is Moshe's attempt, successful at the end, to bring God back amongst the people. That's the first, Moshe has two, two, two things that he's doing, this is the first. So our question is, what does this mean, actually, if we translate this into our own language? What I'm thinking is that actually the Jewish calendar is very simple. That we are marking in the summertime the absence of God. We call the three weeks or Tisha B'Av. 
we are reminding ourselves that God is not in our midst. And we recall during these three weeks two different events. One is the golden calf and the other is the episode of the spies, the Miragun. And they are part of our cycle. We are, we are living out the Torah. That's, 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 what, that, that's what the calendar is about. We live out the Torah. And then begins, once this, and we, we mark that not just by a, a day of fasting, by a day of mourning. Tisha B'Av is not just a fast day. It's a day of mourning. As the Torah says, when the people heard the news that there won't be a temple, they mourned. They mourned. And after the mourning, which is a recognition of what's been lost, then we begin a process moving from the Shabbat after Tisha B'Av until Rosh Hashanah, the seven weeks of consolation. That takes us right up to Rosh Hashanah and from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. So what is this? What is Rosh Hashanah about? If Rosh Hashanah, if Hashem Hashem Kerachim V'Charim is marked through Yom Kippur, and the Mishkan is marked through Sukkot, the, the, the temporary house that we are building, in which we invite people and we invite God into our into our space, what is what is Rosh Hashanah? Strictly, Rosh Hashanah is connected conceptually to what's read over here, to this idea of. What is the idea over here? What is the idea over here? After, because Tisha B'av is about God's absence, and Rosh Hashanah begins the process of, of of reconnecting to God. But the God of Rosh Hashanah is not the God of Yom Kippur, not the God of Sukkot. The different different manifestation of God. It strikes me that what the Chumash is saying over here, prior to the actual Olam Moed, the real Olam Moed is the place that God dwells amongst us. Bekir b'cha, right? But what was Moses' prayer, by the way, after the gold? Yelech no Hashem, Hashem Hashem kerachum v'chanen. What is Moses' response? Yelech no Hashem bekir Walk in our midst. That was Moses' prayer. God says, I will do it. I'm going to make a covenant. I restore the covenant. That, that's bekir. This is different. This is not a God who dwells in our midst. This is a different God that we connect to. This is a God who is far away. Far away, but we are connected to the distant God. That's what it says, right? Who's Moses ambivalent? took his tent. Who's ambivalent? Who's ambivalent? God is at this point. Yes, I would say that's 100% correct. There is no, when you read the, this whole dialogue back and forth, there is no question that God has deep reservations in this story, the way it's told, about whether God really wants to reconnect to Israel or not. There is no question. Your point is extremely important. I'm not going to get into that now, but that's actually a very important and very correct point about this chapter. God has deep reservations. Because God has... Because the history of the people so far has not been a happy one, even without the golden calf. And the future isn't such a happy one either, by the way. So we are complainers. But nonetheless, God does give in to Moshe. Part of it is God's care for the people. Part is the promises. God is Moshe. God does love Moshe. Yes. Yes, that's yes, that's a very important point. God, you you want to embellish that, amplify? Yes. Who's he? Moshe or God? Okay. 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 That that if you're going to speak with him, you have to find him. You have to 
Right. I'm not sure that God is the one. It sounds, sounds like the, the way the Torah presents it, Moses' idea. Moses' idea is, you know, we, here's the point. We always, the way I like to formulate it is, we always think the Torah speaks of two different holy spaces. The Torah speaks of the temple, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and the Torah speaks of the temple, the, the Migdash. Solomon builds the Migdash. We always think of it as, first there was a tabernacle, and then there was a temple. But the, right? Isn't that true? 100%. So, of course, it's historically it's true, but actually it's completely not true. Of course. It's the opposite. There was a temple before there was a Mishkan. It's right here. What's, isn't that true? What came first? The temple or the, the Mishkan or the Mikdash? Which came first? Of course, the Mikdash came first. What's the difference between the Mikdash and the Mishkan? It's exactly your point. The Mishkan is God dwelling amongst us. That's the Mishkan. The Mikdash, Kirchak Mimcha Makom, the Torah says, the Mikdash is far from you. And therefore, because it's far from you, the Mikdash has an aspect that the Mishkan doesn't have, which is the journey. The Mikdash is the journey. Aliyah Loregel, you have to journey. You have to seek it out. You have to seek. The actual danger of the Mishkan is that you forget that it's a journey. You think it's with you all the time. We forget. And the Mikdash... What Moses did was, he created a mikdash before there was a mishkan. He made the people journey. You're crying, you're mourning. Okay, so what are you going to do about that? So you have an opportunity to seek. You can, you can journey. You can travel far away. You have an opportunity to connect to God. who's not present. God is far. God is rachok. But God is, God is a presence, but not an obvious presence. God is a distant presence. That's the first thing that that the first opportunity, Moshe gives us an opportunity actually to seek, to journey. That's a very important point. But actually, in the story, it's curious that the Torah emphasizes something else. <coughs> Not just those that take the journey. Some people journey. Most people, it would appear from the Torah, don't, don't, don't take this journey. But they do something different. The Torah emphasizes something very different, which is very striking. And that is, they didn't leave their homes. They stayed in their own tent. But they stood by the door of their tent. And they would look to see Moses would travel far away. And they would see the cloud would descend and speak to Moshe. And when they saw that cloud, when they saw that cloud, the Torah says, they would, they would stand by their own tent and they would stand up and bow down. That's what the Torah emphasizes very much not so much the journeying to the tent. Moses journeys all the time, and Moses returns back and forth. Some people can do this, but the emphasis in the Chumash that strikes me is not that. Right? All the people would stand up and stand by their own tent. They would look at Moses very carefully. Moses would enter the tent. The cloud would come down, and when they see the cloud, they bow down. Ish petach they would bow down by their own tent. So what is that actually about? It strikes me there are two different things happening over here. The first of which we understand, which is journeying to the distant God that we understand. But the second thing strikes me, which is the main emphasis, is not so much journeying to the distant God, it's somehow trying to connect, as it were, my own experience. I'm not going to be there, I'm here. But somehow to connect to the distant God through my own experience, through my own tent. That's what the Chumash seems to be... 
acknowledging God is there, but in some way trying to connect to that to that distant God, even though the God is far from me, even though I can't, I'm, I'm not there. God is not, in other words, the emphasis is not so much, it's the opposite of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is that we and God are in the same place. The point in this few verses is the opposite. The, the focus is the distance. We are not in the same place. We're in two very different places. Nonetheless, I acknowledge the, the, I, I acknowledge the distant God. And this in the Chumash is the precursor to allowing God to dwell in our, in our presence. And it strikes me that if we think about the calendar and the way the calendar is set up, if we think of Rosh Hashanah as a precursor to Yom Kippur, and we understand, of course, that the narratives of, of, the narratives of Exodus, we, of course we have the list of the holidays. But you know, when you have stories and you have lists, and you match them up, it's never a fair comparison. Because one always overpowers the other one. The stories are always much more powerful than the, than the list. Mm. Always. This, this, the story of it, there's a story to Yom Kippur, there's a story to Sukkot, and there's a story to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is, I stand on Rosh Hashanah before the distant God. The God of Rosh Hashanah is not the God of Yom Kippur. The God of Yom Kippur is much closer to the God of Sukkot, we're dwelling in the same place. Yom Kippur is, is, a, is what allows the Mishkan to be built. Interesting, by the way, is the custom that the Jewish people have to start building the sukkah right after Yom Kippur. It's, a, it's not a small thing. It's, it's making a very important point. The moment Yom Kippur is over, the second it's over, you can hear people already starting to build the sukkah. So Yom Kippur is, a, is, the, is the step before, before Sukkot. Rosh Hashanah is a different day. The God of Rosh Hashanah is a God who's not in our, in our, in our midst. God is sitting on the throne of judgment. It's not standing, it's bowing. It's what? It's bowing. Right, right. It's bowing, right. It's acknowledgement, it's exactly. It's, it's actually, there's a different dynamic to Rosh Hashanah, a different relationship to Rosh Hashanah, and we are, but we are willingly entering into that relationship, which is, we are accepting upon ourselves the judgment. That, I think, is what, part of what's going on over here, of, of standing by their own tents, is accepting the judgment. Rosh Hashanah is a day that we actually enter, we enter into, into the judgment willingly. We are saying in our prayers that we, that we, we, we are accepting the judgment, and we see in, this, in the judgment itself a kind of revelation. There is a revelation in judgment as well, but it's a different God. It's not the God who's imminent, who's with us, holding our hand. It's the God that's far away. So it strikes me that if we read these stories, these four stories in the second part of the... The first part of Exodus is about the Exodus. The first part of Exodus is about Passover, which is the... But the second part of Exodus is not about the physical leaving of Egypt. We left Egypt. The question is, did we actually leave Egypt? Or are we still emotionally and, and intellectually still there? If we say, these are the gods who took you out of Egypt, and we're talking to the golden calf that we ourselves built, that means we're still in Egypt. So therefore, how do, we, how do we achieve that exodus? How do we make the exodus, the spiritual exodus from Egypt? So the Torah has four different stages over here. First is to recognize what's been lost. That's, that's Abedwut. That we mark in our calendar with these three weeks, with Tisha B'Av and all that. Then there's the acknowledgement of, of the distant God. And that's the, that's the day of Rosh Hashanah, actually. And then there is the 
arriving at a reconciliation with God by connecting to God's attributes of mercy and allowing God to connect to us. That's what Moshe does. Moshe pleads with God and gets God to, one might even say, it's very uh, audacious, but God changes God's basic nature, at least as far as dwelling with the people. If you remain the same old God, says Moshe, you can't live with us. But if you, if you manifest in the guise of, of, of mercies, the gods of, God of mercies, that's another story. And that's what allowed God to dwell in the Mishkan. I said, that's what the Torah means when it says later, the place that God has chosen to place God's name. What name? What is the name of God of the tabernacle? The name of God of the tabernacle is Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun. That's, that's the name. The tabernacle becomes the vehicle for, for forgiveness, which is why it has to be cleansed every year. Because if it's stained, they can't, it can't be a vessel for forgiveness, a vehicle for forgiveness. So therefore, the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur is to cleanse the tabernacle to allow it to be a vehicle for, for forgiveness. That's the main point, by the way, that Milgram makes in his 2,000-page book on Leviticus. That's his main it's still worthwhile to read the book. That's his main point, which is the pshat, actually. <coughs> his main point is that the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur is primarily to cleanse the temple. Otherwise, it can't, it can't atone for our sins. It can't be a vehicle of atonement. So therefore, when you read the Chumash, you'll see, the Chumash speaks of, of atoning, atoning for the tabernacle, cleansing the tabernacle. In any event, my point is that the... Yes, the Torah gives a list of holidays... But the Torah also gives us a narrative which we have adopted and made part of our calendar, culminating with Sukkot. The holiday of Sukkot, in this understanding, is the culminating festival, just as the Mishkan is the culminating event of the book of, of, the book of Exodus. Okay, that's all I want to say about Rosh Hashanah in the Chumash. I think there's more to be said to reflect upon this. There's much more here, but I think this is a very important point. Now... I'd like to begin, and today and Thursday, to look at the... Yes? Can I ask you a question? Go ahead. I was thinking, when you talk about what came first in the Mishnah, if you really go back to Ghani Den, that was really the, creation, the first sacred space that, that was created, and that was no doubt. a Mishnah, but it was in one place. And we were, we were expelled from there, and, and so that didn't work the first time. Um, and if you connect that with the fact that Rosh Hashanah is Hayom Harat Olam, really when you're talking about a calendar of living out the calendar, to me there's, a, there's a definitely a Ganesan connection. Okay, I'll talk about that on third. Okay, you know something? Here's, here's what I'll do. Let me, let, me, let me say the following. I'll, I'll, I'll respond to what you said, and then Thursday we'll continue with the core prayer. The core prayer. It's always important to understand what is the core prayer. That's important. You know, people come to the synagogue, many Jews come only on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and they walk in, they know nothing, and they also walk out knowing pretty much nothing, because no one ever explains. I mean, there is no way anybody could figure out the service without explanation on Rosh Hashanah. It's not possible. It's so complicated. And the first step is, we're saying a million things, we're saying way too many things probably. But what is the core? In every discipline you have to understand, what is at the center? So in Rosh Hashanah, there are three prayers that are at the center of Rosh Hashanah. It's also the shofar, but leave the shofar up. In terms of our prayers, there are three. And of the three, if I had to pick one, I would pick the central, the center, central prayer, which is the prayer we call Zichronot, the prayer of remembrances. There's Malchiot, 
There's the blessing about God's kingship. There's zichronot, remembrances, and there is shofarot. That we'll discuss maybe on Thursday what that means, shofarot. Of those three, I would say that the most significant one is the middle one, zichronot. First of all, it's very interesting that the day of Rosh Hashanah itself in the liturgy has a name. When you open up the Machzor, what is Rosh Hashanah called in our our prayers? Yom HaZikaron. The day of Rosh Hashanah is called the day of Zikaron. It's probably playing off what the Torah said, Zichron Shua. So we're calling Rosh Hashanah the day of Zikaron, Yom HaZikaron, the day of remembrance, which probably would certainly suggest to us that the prayers of Zichronot are very central. Now, I've spoken about the prayers of Zichronot many times in the past. That's okay. I think this part of this is a preparation for Rosh Hashanah. So on Thursday, we'll talk about Zichronot, but I want to begin with one simple point that relates to what you said. The Zichronot prayers, by the way, they are written, number one, in gorgeous Hebrew, number one, and number two, they're very old. They're extremely old. The Talmud already had is, 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 is mentioning some of the language that we have in our prayer of Rosh Hashanah. So it's ancient. The way the Zichronot works, and we'll look at this on Thursday, the Zichronot and Shofarot on Thursday, but the way it works is there is a particular structure to the Zichronot service. A particular structure to it. And it, it, base, it has basically three different themes. The Zichronot service has three themes. I'll tell you what they are. Let's see. If you have a machzor, the machzor, we have different machzor in here. The zichronot are the middle of the three blessings in the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah. And this particular, which is this, is the out of a machzor. So it begins, it's on, this one is page 136. Additional service, first day Rosh Hashanah. This, this is the out of a machzor. Atozocher Masei Olam begins with the words Atozocher. God is remembering Masei Olam, what was created from from eternity. Ufokeid Kol Yitzurei Kedem. So let's begin with the following. The, the, the Zichron note has three sections. The first one, what does it mean to say that God remembers? So the first idea of God remembering on Rosh Hashanah is the idea that God is judging. Zichronot on Rosh Hashanah means judgment. That's how it begins. It begins with judgment. What's interesting is, is a very beautiful description and a frankly very frightening description of judgment. And what's interesting is one line, and I'll just stop with this one line because it's already 11 o'clock. But let me just say one thing about it. In this first section, there is a line which is very enigmatic in this translation, page 137, You told us this from the very beginning, from the beginning you told us this. You revealed it from, from earlier times. This day is the beginning of your work. A remembrance of the first day. It is a statue for Israel, Mishpat Yaakov, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. We are saying this on Rosh Hashanah in our service. What does it mean 
Zayom Tchilat Maasechot. This is a day that's a remembrance of the first day. What, what does that mean? People say it. Most people, overwhelming majority, have absolutely no idea what they're saying. So I'll tell you what it means, okay? And don't bother trying to guess it. I'll tell you what it is. It's based on a medrash. The author of this section is writing based on a medrash. The medrash is the following. Rosh Hashanah in Jewish tradition is not the first day of creation. It's the sixth. Rosh Hashanah, the world is created, says the Talmud, on the 25th day of Elul. On the sixth day of creation is Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Tishrei. The Medrash says that on the day that Adam was created, Adam sinned. And on the day that Adam sinned, Adam was judged. So the day of Rosh Hashanah then becomes, is for us, a remembrance of that first day, which is the day of judgment. The day of creation, says the Medrash, and that's what the prayer is saying, the day of creation is the day of judgment. And what's interesting is, and we'll talk more on Thursday, that the person who represents in the prayers judgment, of course, is the first created human being, which is Adam. So the, begin, it be, the, the service of Zichronot begins by talking about judgment, but in particular, it connects it to, to Adam. What's so striking about this, and this I have to stop with this, Thursday we'll talk about it, is that the service of Zichronot is actually founded upon three, person, three people. There are three different people that are lie behind the Zichronot section. The first is Adam, that's judgment. The second, who's mentioned in the prayer service and only on Rosh Hashanah, is Noah. Noah is the second and the main person of the prayer of Sichronot is actually the main person in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah in general is Abraham it's Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in particular Abraham and the section concludes with the binding of Isaac so there's Adam there's Noah and there's Abraham Adam, Noah and Abraham are the three people that together essentially lie behind the creation narratives of the book of Genesis. And as you mentioned before, Yom Harat Olam, the day of Rosh Hashanah is a day we are reminded of creation. But what the Zichronot section does is remind us that the creation narratives may begin in Genesis chapter 1, but extend through at least Genesis chapter 22, the binding of Isaac. And each of these three personalities represents a different element of what this prayer calls Zichronot. The first one being judgment, the second being providence, and the third and main one being covenant. We move from judgment to covenant in the course of these, of this unbelievable prayer, and the, the prayer, of course, is reminding us of the three people that represent each of these three uh, ideas, the first being Adam, the second being Noah, the third being Abraham. So on Thursday, we'll start with this. There's a lot to say about this, and if we have a chance, We'll talk about the structure and the significance of what is called the Shofrot section. What? According to tradition, the world was created and was created and the world 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 was created and the
because we're, I guess, more concerned with creation of the human being. Being humans, I guess that's our primary concern. Okay, Thank stop you. here.